Uh, December the 14th, uh, 2014, lecture discussion number 181 on the book of Romans. And, uh, well, as usual, my answering questions last week, and I did answer questions last week, much to the shock uh, of everyone, but all that does is result in more questions, which is, as you know, exactly the purpose of questions. And that's why I want you to get in the habit, as you read Scripture, always ask a question almost on every passage, every word, if you can. Teach yourself to do that. Some object to my system. They wish for finality, uh, nice, tidy, neat packages that they can then place alphabetically into precise rows within numbered containers. And I have great sympathy for them, but that is not how the Bible works. One quickly realizes that the Bible seldom provides that kind of function. Instead, we find ourselves continually uh, um, more and more doors, finding more doors to open, and then when we get inside those doors, we find more doors and stacks of boxes. And that's the design. That's what the Bible does. And that's something you need to ask yourself, why has he written it this way? All the time, people say to me, why can't it be simpler? Because if it was simpler, what would be the answer? then obviously it wasn't written by God. He's made it the way it is made so that it is proof of his authorship. So begin to look at it in a... Ask always, how is this complex? That will help you. Bill DeCow and I were talking about a wonderful physicist. Man's essentially a genius that is a terrific uh, expositor with regard to creation issues. And, um, but he struggles in Scripture because he's not able to ask, why is this verse complicated? He makes the decision that it is a simple verse. It's never a simple verse. Train yourself to do the opposite of that. And that is where we are today. We're finding more passages to investigate in order to confirm our previous conclusions. And so far I've been able, I've been really firm in my assertion that the talent, um, is gold. And I know that a lot will disagree with me. And that's Matthew 25, I think starts at 14, the parable of the talents. And I've been firm that the talent primarily is a talent of gold. But I accept that the talent symbol has a silver component to it or a silver aspect to it. And so I know that that duality, now you begin to quickly understand where I'm going to head. That duality exists in the symbol that is the talent. So the silver in addition to the gold, and that makes perfect sense for me. I would expect the talent to be gold and silver, because gold is, as as you know, if you've been here for a while, it's deity. Silver is blood, and that is what? Silver, blood, gold. I'll put flesh here for you if you'd like. That would be godhood. So what I have in the talent is the hypostatic Union, the mystery of the incarnation, God adding humanity. If you want to think incarnation, that would be perfectly appropriate. That is inside the symbol of the talent. And I won't object to those who say that the talent is both. I agree with that. I do as well. In fact, I say that it is not just both, but it is simultaneously both. And though in this parable, the parable of the talent, the evidence that the wicked slave, how many talents did he get? 
He got one. A little bit on that in a moment. He got one. When you recognize that this slave received one, one talent, that leads you towards the gold aspect or the godhood aspect of the talent symbol. And the, and the discussion that the wicked, lazy slave has in, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, the discussion that he has with Christ at the end of it, that's centered on the godhood of Christ and the omnibenevolence of Christ, Christ's pure and total goodness. That is what the discussion they're having is about, as well as the origin of evil. That slave is saying, a wicked, lazy slave, he is saying that Christ is evil and he is the source of evil. He is therefore the origin of evil. And now the implication of that argument, if it were to be true, that, that premise, that hypothesis, if it were be, to be true, is immense. And Christ, of course, rebukes him, says, I am not. If you have a position that Christ is, uh, or God is, same, right? Christ, God, same. If you have a position that God is the author of evil, uh, you're deep in the woods, and that's being kind. So anything on the origin of evil will take you to the talent being gold or the godhood, and we're going to pursue that in a moment. I wrote maybe. truth is, I really did get to it. So we will, actually. Last week, uh, lecture number 180, we began to connect Jeremiah 13 to all of this. Well, I don't know if we... If that was true, we've been in Jeremiah 13 for a while, but Jeremiah 13 is a strong aspect of this discussion, specifically the pride of Israel. Jeremiah 13 talks about God looking at this this unjustified pride of Israel. One of the things that I found interesting in the coaching business is I have found people who have all those years of coaching, people who have had skills or talent levels in athletics that were at one level, but their opinion of their level was disconnected. They had an unjustified opinion of their capabilities. And it almost seemed like the lower the athletic ability, the higher the self-opinion. Sometimes that wasn't the case. Um, And I really also see that As I began that career in athletics and coaching, I recognized that was going to be an omnipresent problem for me. I was always going to deal with it, and I began to develop strategies for these kinds of people. I recognized this, this unjustified pride, this unjustified arrogance that the Jews have in Jeremiah 13, that Israel has. And, and God is attacking it. And so we began to connect the, the pride of Israel at Jeremiah 13 with the ability. So I said there's some relationship between the pride and ability. What I mean by that is that the talents of gold were given to the three men based on their ability. Matthew 25:14. And to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to the other one, another one, he gave one. To each according to his ability. And so I began to develop that there's some relationship between the Jeremiah 13 pride concept, or conflict, sorry, and the ability that is in Matthew 25. 
And I submitted also that answering what it was that Israel was so proud of, because that's the question, what is Israel so proud of? You answer what they are so proud of in Jeremiah 13, that's going to lead you to the correct definition of ability in Matthew 25:15, And that's going to require a slight detour today into Jeremiah 18. By slight, I mean a month or so, maybe two. That's not bad, really. I have to at least go into Jeremiah 18, because if you're familiar with Jeremiah 18, you know that Jeremiah 18 is, in fact, the foundation of Romans 9. For those of you who wonder how we get here, this is how we got there. In the first place. And uh, last week I got a request. They wanted me to ever so briefly, as if that was possible, give them an explanation of the 5-2-1. And that is a fantastic uh, discussion. What I mean by that is the numerical significance of Matthew 25. The five talents, the two talents, the one talent. And it's since it's obvious, you see, when you recognize the 521 numerology, sorry, when you recognize that that has to have great importance in that parable, it becomes really obvious that the wicked slave would get one talent. Um, did you ever ask, why did he get one? Why isn't it reversed? Why didn't the wicked slave get five talents? Why didn't he get two? How come these numbers five, two, one are here? God gave you this lecture. There has to be a reason for the order. Begin to think complexly, just like I began. Start to say, what is this? And why did the wicked guy, the wicked lazy, to shorten who he is, I'll call him wicked lazy for most of this lecture, why did the wicked lazy get one? He got one because he was, that's, he was supposed to get one. There's great intendment, there's this unbelievable message of one talent. That's without dispute. I don't want any of you to make the common error that is so difficult to eradicate for whatever reason. I don't want you to have the common error that one talent is of less value somehow than five talents or that it's inferior. That in other words, this guy got a lot, this guy got a little, and this guy got hardly any. No, one talent is extraordinary. The meaning of the one is so important. And it becomes again obvious that the wicked lazy would get one. He wouldn't get five and he wouldn't get two. He would have to have one. It'd be unfortunate if you don't understand that. My credentials should be revoked. If any of you leave Cliffside with a shallow conclusion that that one is somehow of less importance than the five or the two. If the opposite is true, the one who got the most important talent was the one who got one. And I submit to you, he very well immediately knew why. One talent has hidden within it importance that is immeasurable. I'll say, okay, so that's quite the buffet of topics we have so far, right? And, and what, what else do we have? 
Uh, My plan today, of course, was to get to the bankers, because Christ says you should have given the talent to the bankers, and you could have gotten interest. And I asked last week, God doesn't need interest, so what's the point of interest? What does it mean? Uh, Then we have oil. Oil is always, you can't get away from oil, and running out of oil, I'm putting it over here, Obviously, you can't run out of oil. We'll have to deal with that. There's places in Scripture that specifically talk about oil and running out of it, right? Start looking those up ahead of time. And then, of course, uh, lazy. He's, he's wicked and lazy. When God says lazy, what does he mean? Does he mean what we are? Start thinking of lazy as a very complex word with an incredible meaning to it. Just like everything else that God said. Quit assigning simple meanings to Scripture. When you do that, you always miss the treasures that are there. Now, last week we did solve the question of whether the five wicked, virgin, virgin bridesmaids, Notice I stopped on that word. We solved the question and and made the point that they did not, uh, whether or not some think they took some oil. And I have the position that they took no oil and the context makes it obvious. The concluding statement of Christ is, I do not know you. And that makes it clear that those five wicked virgins, not just foolish, also wicked, that they intentionally took no oil. Christ would not say, I do not know you, unless there is an intention, a premeditation. And for those who missed that lecture or any of the previous ones, that one was 180. I don't have time to to revisit it, but uh, that is the reason why it is clear. The context makes it clear that they took no oil. We'll get into it a little bit today. I'll make uh, a few more points about that. So to repeat this, all three parables contain the same themes. Can't say that enough. All three parables have the same themes. And one of those themes is that God gives. Let me get rid of some of this stuff. Took care of talent here. I got Virgin on the board. I can get rid of, I'll leave hypostatic union for a while. One of those themes is, is that God gives. God gives. Now, there's somebody else in the, uh, in the parables that doesn't give. One hides, right? And what does God give? He gives food. He gives talents. Oops. And what else does he give? What should be obvious? Matthew 24:45, he gives them food. Matthew 25:15, he gives them talents. And therefore, God is giving this. So God is doing it in all three parables. God is the bridegroom in the second parable. Christ is the bridegroom. That's without dispute. God is the bridegroom as God is the master in the first parable and he is the Lord in the third parable. So Christ, God, is in all three and God the bridegroom. Therefore, if God is giving food and God is giving talents, what else is he giving? Oil. He has to be the one that's giving the oil. That's the theme of those three parables. 
So God, the bridegroom, must also give the oil. And knowing that solves the meaning of the oil. And I, I know that's repetition for most of you, but I, I need to pound it in um, for those who might have missed that. But it also, as soon as you have that piece of information that God is the one that gives the oil, you've just, had, you've just added another 50 questions to your problem solving, haven't you? For example, when did the bridegroom give the oil? To the bridesmaids or to the virgins. This week, I am saying the word virgins a lot. There's a reason. If he's giving oil to the bridesmaid, how many took the oil? Five. There's another five for us to deal with. Five took the oil. Well, what's that mean for the other five? They did not take the oil from God. Is it because God did not offer? Remember what it says. They took no oil. So when did they have the opportunity to take oil? Whenever they had that opportunity, obviously they took none. Now, in the weeks to come after uh, January, after our uh, little interlude here, our usual Christmas break, I'm going to get into the debate as to who is the, who are the five foolish and who are the five wise bridesmaids. But they did not take any oil. It was offered to them. The text, the three parables make it clear that God had to give food, God had to give talents, and God had to give oil. And the bridesmaids that didn't have any oil took none. So why didn't they take it? What's their motive? What have you decided the oil is? God is going to give you oil and you're going to say, no. I got a lamp, but I'm not taking your oil. That is why he calls them foolish. That is why the context of all three parables gives you that they are uh, likewise wicked. It becomes obvious that they are likewise wicked. Uh, as we continue. Now, those questions lead us to the explanation of why they say to the other's bridesmaids, give us your oil. We didn't take it from God. We're going to take it from you. And by the way, you'll see the word some. A lot of you people have Bibles that has some in there. Give us some of your oil. You'll notice immediately that that is in italics and is not in the text. So the first thing you do is you get the eraser that the grandson could not steal because I hit it on top of the lectern where he couldn't reach it yet, though he shows a possibility of being diabolical. And I expect any day now he will have some kind of ladder and pulley system and I'm going to be in a lot more trouble. Some is not in the text. It's give us your oil. And that is why the five wise bridesmaids said in response, Go rather to those who sell and buy. Never pass over. Sell and buy in Scripture. My goodness. Say to yourself, wow, that's got to be really complicated. And it is. And that they went to buy, it says. And that phrase is relevatory. They went to buy. Who? 
would they go to buy from? They wouldn't take it from God when he offered it to them, but now they're going to go buy it. Who, who thinks like this? <laughs> Hopefully that did not get into the... Uh... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Those of you on the Internet who, who wonder why we don't always let you know what we say here, there was a good reason. <laughs> you would have got thousands of letters if that gets over. <laughs> hmm. I'll get hundreds of letters asking me to say what you said. I won't identify you, Becky. I won't. No possibility that's going to happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where was it? That was very funny, and I appreciate it. Comedy is hard, as you know. So who goes to buy? Who thinks like this? I'm not going to take the oil. When God gives me the oil, I'm going to refuse it. But I'm going to demand that somebody who took the oil give me that oil that they have, which, of course, is impossible. And, and then I'm going to believe that there exists a seller of oil as opposed to a giver of oil. God does not sell oil. It can't be sold because it can't be bought. You don't have enough. There's, it's an infinite product. You can't possibly buy an infinite product. But these five wicked virgin bridesmaids, they go ahead and uh, they, they went to buy it. That means it tells you something. It reveals the, their thought process. They think it's possible to buy oil. Again, won't take it from God, but we'll buy it. And again, I believe, as you know, that the seller of oil, as opposed, that's a direct opposite. Giving and selling are opposites. So whoever is selling oil is the opposite of God who is giving the oil, giving the food, giving the talent. The seller of it is the opposite of that. And I think that is the same as the evil servant in the first parable and the wicked and lazy servant in the third parable. So I have wickedness everywhere. The seller is the wicked, is wicked as well in the middle. I have, uh, Wicked servants on each side and selling oil, burying the talent and killing fellow Jewish servants. Make sure I say that for the benefit of those who are trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. The Antichrist sells oil. The Antichrist buries talents. And the Antichrist is killing and beating his fellow Jewish servants. That's all the same. That's the same depraved, darkened, reprobate mindset. Now, who controls selling and buying? Oh, let me put it a different way. Who controls buying and selling? I will help you. The one who controls all buying and selling, Revelation 13:17, is the one selling. Those words are not by accident. Christ doesn't use buy. God does not use buy and sell by accident. And note also the subsequent goat and sheep separation that concludes these three parables, because that is a 75-day interval event, and so God is also talking about tribulational Israel. There. So don't forget to connect that to them if that makes any sense to anybody but me. Okay. Now we're going to take on ability. You may not think I'm doing it, but I am. So we'll erase this. 
And off we'll go into Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, as you know, is the parable of the potter and the clay. That is how potter clay, that is how you get to Romans 9, which is what our whole series has always been about, right? So feel free to co-instantaneously read Romans 9, 1 through 24, while I'll read uh, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 13. Can you do that? No, but somebody will be able to stop. This is where the Internet folks have a great advantage. So here I am reading, uh, and in my Bible, I just looked at myself here, and this thing is a... Just broken to pieces. But right here by Jeremiah 18, I have written Romans 9. It's a good idea. If your Bible doesn't have that kind of notation for you, this is the place you write Romans 9. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 13. So let's read this. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. Now, the potter is a very important figure in Scripture Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver at the potter. That's the great prophecy of Zechariah. And, and so you have to know this, the value of the potter and who the potter is. Who do you think the potter is? I will help you understand the potter so that you don't get lost here. I'll make sure you know by writing it that way. Rise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. So we have two vessels, if you will, two jars, two pots, whatever you want, whatever you would like to decide. Make your own decisions. The first one was marred. The second one, so he reformed it and made it again. He needed it back together is the implication. Then the word of the, God, of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you, are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will... Relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is a parable being acted out by Jeremiah with a potter. So this is a dramatic theodicy. You have to understand what that means. You don't have time today, but just put that in your head. I've explained it before. I'll do it again. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. 
So God is saying, disaster will fall upon the nation of Israel. It's marred. If I have to, I'll just take the vessel, fold it back up, and put it back on the wheel. and make. So I have two jars here, don't I? Very important to know, there's two jars. Let me go back to this. Five, two, one. Make sure, return. He's saying to them, repent. And this is what Israel says to God's response, or God's telling them, listen, we have a huge problem. You're evil. All of you are evil. What's the obvious question right there? What's so evil? What are they doing? And here's how they respond to him. This is the key phrase in this passage. And they said, this is hopeless. That's the same thing. I'll help you here. Hopeless. This is hopeless. Or if you wish, it's impossible. Think of it that way. Promised or paraphrase. And they said, this is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone do the dictates of his evil heart. That's what they said. God said, repent. And they said, it's hopeless to repent. In fact, they said, it's impossible to repent. Oh, really? That's very interesting. And because it's hopeless, or because it's impossible, we're going to continue to do what's in our evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord. So you have this call and answer, if you will. Repent? No. Okay? Ask now among the Gentiles. Who has heard such things? The Gentiles would not do this. The virgin of Israel has done, let me read it before I write virgin. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. So again, note that Israel was not obeying the voice of God. Obvious question, what is he asking them to do? And I want you to think specifically before you think generally. What specifically is he saying to them to do? There's an evil here. What is the evil? Notice it as well that Israel responds to him saying, repent. They say it's, there's no hope. That's the King James. There's no possibility that we will repent. It's hopeless. And God is calling on Israel to repent from something or some things. And they say, no, we're going to walk according to our plan. We have a plan. We're going to do it our way. We're not going to do it your way. Does that remind you of anything? Again, let's go back to the word. The virgin Israel has done a horrible thing. What did they do? They took no oil. We will take no oil. That's a horrible thing. 
Now, I know I made the leap there, but let's see if I can back it up. Let me repeat. It is hopeless for us to repent. God says, repent from your evil, and they say, hopeless. Consider that for a moment. Repent from evil. So, what are they doing? They effectively argue that they cannot, it is impossible, it is hopeless, obedience to God cannot be done. We can't do it. And therefore, they're going to stay evil. And obviously, this is this, in this parable, this, this event in Jeremiah 18, the evil that is being done, We've got to make sure we properly um, figure that out. We've defined it correctly. And hopefully you can see my intention with Jeremiah 18, why I have introduced it to the uh, three parables of Matthew 24:45 through 25:30. It's not just because of the virgin, though that is a, a powerful uh, link in my view. This, it is impossible to obey God. Obey, he, he, obey what? Specifically, What does he want you to obey? They say it's impossible, hopeless to do it. Ask the obvious questions. Why is it impossible? What is the logic behind this? It is impossible. It is hopeless. It is useless. Can you see immediately why we should connect this Jeremiah 18.12 to Jeremiah 13.12? That's the key to the sash and the wine jar parable. This is, they say here in 18.12... That it is impossible, it's useless, it's hopeless. And so we're going to continue being evil. At 13.12, he says to them, uh, I'm going to fill up the wine jars. And he sa- they say back to, back to him. Well, let me just read that, get that perfect. Therefore, he tells Jeremiah, you shall speak to them, Israel. Thus says the Lord of God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they say back to him, and they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? I am submitting to you that every bottle will be, do we not certainly know? So let me put that on the board. Do we not certainly know? I'm submitting to you that certainly know directly connects to It is hopeless. Those are the same thing. I see I have hopeless already written above it, and I could have just not written it again. And now we should place Matthew 24, 48 alongside that, shouldn't we? Now I have Jeremiah 18, 12, 13, 12, Jeremiah, and now we've got Matthew 24, 48. The evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Instead of feeding his fellow slaves, the evil servant begins to beat them and kill them. And next I have the deliberate premeditated act of taking no oil in the parable of the ten virgins. The five foolish virgins take no oil. And then they demand that oil be given to them from the others that did take it. And then they then also connect the similar action of burying the talent in the third of the three parables by the wicked lazy servant. Now, you got all of that together, I hope. Think of spinning plates. You've got all those spinning plates. Now, look once more at Matthew uh, 24, 
or 2524, where the wicked lazy slave says, I knew you to be a terrible man. Hard doesn't do the, what, the, what the definition of that word implies. He says to Christ, he says to God in the flesh, he says to the Lord God Almighty to his face, I knew you to be a terrible man, one that destroys, that uh, is violent, is uh, murderous. I knew you to be a murderous man. So try to put it all together now. It is impossible to repent. We can't repent. It's hopeless. Hopeless to repent. Do we not certainly know that all the jars are going to be filled? I knew you to be a murderous, terrible God and the author of evil and sin. Put those three together. It's obvious that someone who says, who believes that those three statements uh, are true... A person that believes that would kill instead of feed, they would take no oil, and they would bury the talent. That's a guarantee. If you believe that it's impossible to repent, hopeless to repent, that if you think all the jars are going to be filled, and if you think that God is a murderous, terrible, source of evil God, then you will kill instead of feed you will take no oil, and you will bury the talents. Now, God answers that. He an- Those are three accusations, by the way. It's impossible to repent. We know all the jars are going to be filled. And you're a terrible God. Those are three accusations. And God answers those accusations. He does it by, in Jeremiah 13, they are filled with insanity. He gives them over to insanity. He allows, that thinking leads to a debased mind. And the the repercussions are darkness, insane darkness. Eventually they, they just crash into one another. And they're dashed and all the, think of them as pottery and they just crash themselves and break themselves into pieces. He comes to the the wicked slave that says, oh, he's delaying. He catches him unawares and he cuts him in two. He shuts the door on the five virgins that refused the oil. He takes the talent away. I'm sorry, he also says, I do not know you. And he shuts the door on the... uh, on the five foolish virgins. He takes the talent away from the wicked and lazy. And he casts the un- he calls him the unprofitable, useless, ruined, marred servant. He casts him into utter darkness. And that unprofitable is identical in Jeremiah 13 to the ruined or unprofitable sash. And I encourage you to examine carefully all of those elements. I know I don't have time to do it all adequately, but boy, is there a lot here. The unprofitable servant, the profitable for nothing sash, the ruined or clay or the marred clay. You could spend a whole lot longer than I could even imagine on those subjects right there. Okay. 
the nation of Israel certainly knew that all of the jars would be filled. And they were proud of that. That is, you see the order? He said, you have this, this pride, this unjustified, irrational pride. And they manifest why they have it by saying, we knew, we certainly know. We know that all the jars are going to be filled. I'm trying not to just blurt it out for you. I'm trying to get you to figure it out. In case you're wondering. And the wicked and lazy servant, what did he say? Do we not certainly know? What did the lazy servant say? Lord God, I what? I knew. So I have this, this knowing in both the wicked lazy and the Jeremiah 13. He knew that Christ knew in quotation marks, knew Israel, knew all the jars would be filled. Let me ask you this. Are all the jars going to be filled? Not the way they knew it. That was a lazy and wicked slave. He knew that Christ was the author of evil. Who convinced him of that, by the way? Israel said it. They knew it was impossible to repent. Remember the sash from Jeremiah 13? Wow, a fly has landed on my lecture. He's in a precarious position, I would say. I can send him towards the congregation, or I can keep him here as a memento. I think I'll just let him go. There he goes. I hope he appreciates the extra 15 minutes that I gave him. He is headed for the brisket. Let's be aware. How important it is to stop that. The sash was not to touch water. The five foolish virgins took no oil. The evil servant was not aware when Christ was returning and was cut in two. That's exactly Revelation 19, right? 20. The five foolish virgins didn't know that you couldn't buy or sell oil. The wicked and lazy slave was wrong when he said, I knew God to be a murderous, terrible man, or God. And what does God say? They all this, this, they knew that the, the jars were going to be filled. They knew that God was terrible. They knew that it was hopeless. Impossible. It's impossible to repent. And if it's impossible to repent, then what happens next? If I think it's impossible to repent, so you have to answer that question. There's many people today that say it's impossible to repent. You can't repent. That's the obvious question. Why is it impossible to repent? What makes it impossible to repent? They're saying it's impossible to repent, and therefore we're going to double down on evil, wicked. We have our plan. We know, we believe, we're pretty convinced that it's impossible to repent. And now that justifies us being what? As evil as we want to be. Because what's going to happen? What do they think? 
They think what? All the jars will be filled. But the sash, don't, don't let water touch it. And the five wicked virgins took no oil. Notice that act. They took no oil. Notice how I said that. What is taking? Taking is an outward physical manifestation of something. What? If you take the oil, what, what precipitated that? What mental process? Was it just an impulse? Or was it a rational taking? But they know this stuff. They know that the jar is being filled. They know that it's impossible to repent, so therefore we're going to go and double down, triple down, go crazy evil. We know that's, that's going to work out. And the other guy knows that God's the author of evil. Do you see how they all fit together? Because they all fit together. What does God say to the virgins? I do not know you. He repeats it back to them, doesn't he? God did not know any of them. When God does not know you, you, that's the end. That's cast into darkness. The accounting did, in fact, come. Guess what? It isn't impossible to repent. It's not hopeless. You do have to take the oil. God is good, always good. He's not terrible. He's not murderous. He is not the author of sin. And it's my hope that you all have recognized the trace that is the free will component issue in all of this. That you see the free will of the statement, it is impossible for us to repent. What are they saying? We don't have the will. We can't repent. Even if God enables them to repent, it's still impossible. They say it can't be done. I knew you to be the source of sin. Took no evil. They say open to us. They were convinced those those five virgin uh, who took no oil. They were convinced that they had something that would get God to open that door. And I, I'm going to say that we certainly know that all of us will be saved, irrespective of how evil we are, because it's impossible to repent. Again, why is it impossible? What would make them think that it's impossible for them to repent? I'll just give you a a little basic understanding as best I can. How many of you believe that it is impossible for you to repent? I hope you don't answer. Good. Here is a bunch of people, millions of people, who believed it was impossible. Are there millions of people today who believe it is impossible to repent? Oh, yeah. They're everywhere. Absolutely. He says, I don't know you, if you think that. The arrogance of all of those things. It's impossible for us to repent. I knew you to be the source of sin, taking no oil, demanding that God save you. Demanding it. Not begging. Not pleading. Not throwing yourself down for mercy. Doing as much sinfulness as you can. Putting as much wickedness in your life as you possibly can cram in there. And then standing in front of him and demanding that he save you. Because you think he's going to. He has no choice. You think he has no choice. 
because you think it's impossible. And if it's impossible, what have you done to the omnipotence of God? You have reduced it substantially. Remember, the question of Jeremiah 13 is, what is Israel so proud of? What pride has caused this descent into this reprobate condition? How does someone get to a place where they say and they actually believe that it is impossible so we will walk according to our own plans? And we will, every one of us, do the imaginations of our evil hearts. Who thinks like that? Right now, I'd say 85, 90% of this country. Europe is worse. How many people think that it is, uh, there is no accountability? That God will never come. They will never be stopped. And everyone will be saved no matter what. How many believe that? Lots. Is it not obvious that this is the ultimate end? This is the inevitable conclusion of those who begin with the premise that mankind has no accountability. Mankind has no will of any kind. No capacity to have even the slightest, tiniest bit of will. The slightest, the little, the few. That's why I want you to reflect on this. Matthew twenty-five, twenty-three. These are the ones, this is the two and the five. The guys with the two and the five talents. He says this to them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. Little few, but few is few. My question is, how few is few? How many is few? That's an important thing. You have been faithful over a few things. Not a lot. Lest you start going around thinking you're doing something really cool. But a few things to repeat. How can someone, anyone conclude that they will pursue evil with all of their mind? How do you have a mind without a will and that God will not hold them accountable? Who believes that there is no judgment? I used to have a friend that would work with me for many, many years. He would scream all the time, where is the fear of God? There is none. Or so little now, we can't find it. I'm stunned, by the way. Let's just take Hollywood for fun. I am stunned that people are finding out that Hollywood is filled to the brim with perversion and wickedness. There's a shock. Are you kidding me? Uh, the, the people that you thought were was a wonderful family man turns out to be a serial rapist. He's a somnophiliac. He's someone that enjoys perverse things his whole life. You're shocked by that? That whole of Hollywood is a cesspool. We've known it since I was a kid. Why are we surprised it remains that way? Do they think they're going to be held accountable? Jimmy Stewart is gone. Sorry. All that's left is a mess. Why are we surprised? 
who acts every day as if they're never going to be held accountable? Well, there's a whole city, a whole industry. I'm watching what's happening to Disney World, the Disney Corporation. It's amazing. But not surprising. And this is common today. This is the prevalent thinking. Our country is saturated in this thinking, this evolutionary monism, fatalism, hedonism. See, it is impossible, this fatalism. And uh, that comes from uh, monistic thinking, by the way. The contemporary church has got it likewise. It's called universalism or modernism. Everyone will be saved. Christ is not incarnated God. God will not judge anyone. Judgment is bad. You go on TV, the biggest churches in this country never say God will hold you accountable for your will, for your sins, your willful sin. That's their singular message, the modernists, by the way. Because they insist that God, he, he's not going to judge because he can't judge. Why can't he judge? You've heard me say it thousands of times because they say he's the source of evil. And we have no will, they say. We are not responsible for anything. We're just simply some kind of automaton. And add that, add to that their contempt for the deity of Christ. The modernistic movement loathes the truth of Christ's godhood, knowing full well that if Christ is not God, if they can convince you that he is not God, it is simple to convince you that the plan of salvation is invalidated immediately. In fact, it's impossible. There is no possibility of salvation if Christ is not God. So... Redemption, salvation, eternal life all rest on the truth that Christ is gold and silver. That makes sense. Hope it does. The Lord God Almighty coming to his creation in the flesh, blood, right? So God, blood, fully God, fully perfect man, pure, absolute good. If any of that is untrue, there is no resurrection there's no eternal life for anybody, and that is what they're saying today. That's evolutionary monism. The only thing left is despair, hopelessness, evil, purposelessness, cessation, blah, 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 right? And God says to the third slave, who says this to his face, who hid the talent, you wicked and lazy. So not just lazy, wicked and lazy. So what do you have to do now? What are we left to do as I'm running out of time? I thought I'd get to it. But you have to figure out what part of what the wicked, slave, wicked lazy slave does is li- wicked and what part of what the wicked lazy sla- slave does is lazy. Does that make sense? Barely got it out. Blah, blah, blah. We must decide which applies to what. We also must figure out this 5-2-1, huh? That's not hard. Let's see how much time I got. Wow. Going to make it. I got zero minutes. Is that what you said? That's perfect. How many is zero? Let's figure out the five, two, one. Five is what in the Bible? What is it? I got five stones, right? David has five stones. Five, uh, just to be quick here, is the symbol in Scripture of grace, of giving. You either come to God with nothing in your hand, which is what he says to do, or you come to God with something in your hand, which he says is wickedness. By that I mean either you understand that you are helpless to save yourself, or you believe God will, will be forced to accept you unconditionally. In other words, he'll open the door when you scream at him, no matter how wicked you are. 
And salvation, you either believe salvation is not impossible or you don't. Five is the ultimate, ultimately is salvation centric. If you think salvation is impossible, then you're wicked. Two is the incarnation. It's the hypostatic union. It's testimony. It's witness. What is one? What did the wicked, lazy slave, he got one talent. What did he get? What did it mean? One is the indivisible unity. It's the Godhead. That's why he got one talent. Each got a truth. Salvation is given. It's grace. It has to be grace. Incarnation. God coming as man. Blood and flesh. Godhood. Gold. And God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Very important. By the way, five plus two plus one is what? Eight. Eight is a dominical number. What I mean by that, eight is the number of Christ. So the five and the two and the one head up to Christ. There are three aspects of his infinity. As the musicians come forward, and that's where we will stop. When we come back again, which for those of you on the internet, will, whoa, will be the, uh, I think the 11th, right? We'll be missing the next two Sundays. Uh, yes, January 11th will be lecture number 182, God willing. That is the old joke, right? You want to tell God what you're going to do tomorrow? You just make him laugh. That's crazy thinking, so we'll pretend that we understand all of that. Let's rise and be dismissed.